Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. For the first century and a half after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee was an American icon, revered by white people in the North and South alike. In the 21st century, challenges to the long-dominant lost cause interpretation have caused the public to reconsider how to view the war and its participants, including Lee. We've all seen paintings of Lee and Grant at Appomattox shaking hands, but few of us have read Lee's indictment for treason against the United States, which started a legal proceeding that has since disappeared from public memory. What was the outcome of that proceeding, and why has it been forgotten? We'll ask John Reeves, author of The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, The Forgotten Case Against an American Icon. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
coming to you tonight from Civil War Talk Radio Field Expeditionary Headquarters in Gross Point Shores, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, at the home of Civil War Talk Radio's number one fan, my mother, who is recuperating and hopefully will be back here in the house soon, but I've come back to Michigan to help visit with her at a local facility and make sure she gets care she needs and comes home as soon as possible. Uh, Mom, when you hear this, that means you're back home, so that'll be good news. The sound quality uh, that you're getting tonight is perhaps the uh, result of the 11-inch tablet purchased at Walmart that I'm using instead of the usual uh, desktop computer, so I apologize if it's a little muddier, more like calling from the Civil War itself than than from a modern university. That would be East Carolina University, where the show normally comes from, as always, not speaking for ECU or its baseball team that sadly bowed out of the NCAA tournament this past week, not speaking for anyone but myself, and likewise, guests will do the same as always. It's June 6th of 2018 as we Uh, discuss our our topic this evening. That, of course, is the anniversary of D-Day in the Second World War. It's also the birthday of Mrs. Civil War Talk Radio, my wife Emily. Happy birthday. Sorry I could not be home today. Uh, Emily is, like me, a teacher. She teaches at a a K-12 school and is a much better teacher than than I am. She's she's extremely good. I've had a chance to watch her once or twice. Her rapport with students is remarkable. And as is the way at many institutions, the rewards for being really good at what you do is to be given more jobs to do while everyone else gets fewer. Uh, In this case, she's been asked to teach a history class next year, which uh, she will be good at because she's an extraordinary teacher. But the mere fact that an institution would ask someone who's really good at teaching English to also teach history reflects a sort of society-wide contempt for and ignorance of the discipline of history. Uh, you wouldn't ask someone, oh, why don't you teach Italian next semester? You're, you're good at English. Uh, why don't you teach physics? You're good at English. But uh, but history, you know, anyone can do that. The uh, as the saying goes, what's the most common first name for American high school history teachers? Coach. Uh, don't have anyone to teach American history? Give the textbook to the football coach. He can read it. And that explains why so many of my first-year students come to ECU utterly devoid of interest in history and sorely lacking in knowledge about it. The bright side of that is when they come into a classroom taught by someone who's actually uh, a professional in the subject, uh, even, even one who's moderately good at it, as I think I am, we often open, uh, my colleagues and I, and I can open their eyes to what a great thing it is to study history, how fascinating it is. You already know that because you're listening to this show, but if how many people we all know who didn't like history in school, but they came to love it on their own. Uh, too often it's because high schools, middle schools don't respect the discipline and give the classes to uh, whoever fits the schedule, not to somebody with training in the field. Oh, well, uh, at, at least at my wife's school, they will be in good hands because of her 
really amazing ability. Back here at Civil War Talk Radio, then, thank you, as always, for your donations and suggestions. Uh, next week's show is a result of a listener's suggestion. It will be uh, Kevin Duffus discussing a Civil War mystery. The title of the book is The Lost Light, and I won't say anything more. That would spoil the mystery, uh, but uh, I know you'll want to find out the answer. Come and join us for that. And then on June 20th, the following week, we will have the last show of the 19... Uh, no, 18, 2018, 2017 and 18 season, last show of the season, The Iron Way, Railroads, the Civil War, and the Making of Modern America. Uh, William Thomas is the author. He'll be our guest. And that also is a listener's suggestion, or more accurately, a graduate student's suggestion. Uh, I've had the book on my shelf with many others in the queue to someday get on the show, and one of my students read it and raved about it, and that brought it up to the top of the list. So we'll have those two in the weeks ahead. You can always find out from impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Talk Radio website. Go there, uh, check it out. Mark Gaffney continues to keep it up to date, uh, continues to update our Facebook page as well, does uh, a really outstanding job with no more compensation than uh, the occasional spare book. If I get a duplicate copy, I can send one along to him. Uh, and occasionally a little bit of the donations that you send to help defray the uh, bandwidth costs for the website. So do consider contributing to Civil War Talk Radio. That's where the money goes. Uh, And some of it will also go to my travel costs. Uh, After the last show of the season this week, uh, or in two weeks, I'm heading off to Gettysburg for the annual Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. If any of you are going, look forward to saying hello to you when we get there. I've been invited there to spend the week amongst the people who will be speaking and interviewing them on site to record shows to play next fall on Civil War Talk Radio. Now, most shows will still be live like this one, uh, but it will be an interesting experiment to record a few of them in the field uh, live and then play them later. It'll be a chance to get two or three scholars in the room at one time, people from different branches of public history, academic history, popular history. We'll see how it goes. It should be interesting. But it's uh, it's a long way to go back and forth, so uh, your contributions help defray the travel for that. This is not uh, a project financed by East Carolina or its history department or anyone else, uh, just by you and by me, and uh, happy to keep it that way. Well, tonight we have a particularly... Uh, interesting topic. The title of the book is The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, The Forgotten Case Against an American Icon, and the author is John Reeves, who is new to the program, and let's welcome him. Uh, Mr. Reeves, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. uh, Welcome to the show. Glad you could join me. Uh, You're publisher contacted me about this book and uh, I gather it's not even released yet or just released this week is that is yeah, how new exactly. is exactly well yeah it's just coming out um, at the moment so if, if you're listening to this show uh, anytime after today June 6th the book is out there uh, but you'll be among the first to know about it and uh, the first to read it when you get your copy uh, so John tell you and I have not met on the Civil War trail before. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your day job. What do you do when you're not writing 
uh, about yeah, the Civil so, War. Know, I, yeah, I would yep. say um, I was a teacher. So I was noticing you mentioned that earlier. I was a teacher for 15 years at mm-hmm. um, in in New York and London, um, and then I left teaching and was in financial journalism for 10 years or so. And um, it's funny because both of those experiences really helped with this book. You know, the, so my interest in history, obviously I was a history teacher, um, but then the, the journalism part, the kind of investigative uh, mindset and, and digging up documents and that sort of thing also played a role too. Well, I, I find that's often the case across fertilization. People who have uh, practiced law or uh, Mark Geiger's excellent book on financial fraud in Missouri. He was an ex-banker that went to grad school. Mm-hmm. Uh, people bring all kinds of expertise to the table. What about your interest in the Civil War? Where, where does that come from? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny. I mentioned this in my uh, introduction. Um, I, I think I've been interested in the Civil War since I was a little boy. I can remember reading Bruce Catton's, um, you know, I think it was the American Heritage um, the book, you know, where it came out in the 60s and I was little and I would check it out in the library. And anyway, I've been reading Civil War on and off uh, for my whole life, basically. Um, I, you know, I, I, I went, I was in graduate school and, and studied for a PhD and was, and did most of my work at that time in European history. Um, but, you know, I've always been interested in American history as well. And, and the Civil War has just been sort of a, um, passion of mine, you know, independently of whatever else I was working on. Well, I, I would say your uh, introduction through the Bruce Catton American Heritage book puts you in the majority of guests on this show, or at least yeah. a, a strong plurality. So many of us, and I'm one of them, remember that book so well from the 1960s and how uh, it just opened a window on this fascinating world and, and uh, brought so many of us into it. So that's very yeah, I really admire him as a, as a narrative historian. You know, mm-hmm. he is, um, you know, among the best. Um, even, you know, um, I, re- I really admire his work. It, it is very... Uh, I, I compare it to uh, French cooking. It's like very rich when you start reading it. If you haven't mm-hmm. read it in a while, it's so just impossible to, to handle for the first 10, 20 pages. And then, then you just can't get enough of it after, after you get acclimated. You just you keep wanting to read, read all 500 pages at a stretch. It gets really absorbing. Well, let me ask you about um, the lost indictment of, of Robert E. Lee. How did you come across this topic? Yeah, so, you know, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll give you the short version. Um, okay. Basically, I was, reading, I was reading about Lee, and um, I was interested in that period right after Appomattox and right after the assassination of Lincoln. And I had read somewhere that, you know, Lee had been this real, you know, force for, for unification and bringing the North and South together after the war was over. And so as I read more about it, I also discovered that, you know, there was this treason case against him. And I thought, that isn't something I had known much about. It had always been sort of a footnote or a couple of pages here or there. And um, the, the great Douglas Southall Freeman in his four-volume biography of Lee says that, you know, the indictment had disappeared. You know, so 
and this is where the investigative side of me came into play. I was like, disappeared? Well, where did it go? You know, and, and then I sort of privately hunted it down and, and was able to find it in the Library of Virginia. But along the way, I learned more about the case and more about that period in the aftermath of the Civil War, which really isn't what we remember it to be. Um, that I think sometimes the, the history textbook look at Appomattox as kind of like, okay, this is kind of, we all came together with this great ceremony and we, we put, put all the bad stuff behind us, but that wasn't the case at all. And, and Andrew Johnson vowed to make trees and odious and he was going after these Confederate leaders and the country was very upset after Lincoln's assassination. And Lee wasn't the hero that he became by the middle and late 20th century, but rather, as he himself said, he felt like a monster. Uh, and and so, so that's the story. I, I felt like, well, this is something that really isn't widely known. And then the, the further I dug in, the more I found. There was a lot of rich primary source material. And, um, and, and so that's how the book uh, came, to, came to be. Well, it, it is a, a fascinating story. You start out in the, the beginning of the book talking about Lee's pardon. Uh, I mm-hmm. guess that's, that, that's not quite the right word, but uh, the removal of his political disabilities by Congress in right. 1975. Uh, yeah, that uh, is a very interesting story. A colleague of mine, uh, uh, when I was in graduate school at, I'm, I'm compelled to mention, Harvard University, uh, always trying to get my money's worth out of that, um, mm-hmm. uh, Fran McDonald uh, was in grad school with me at the time, and he wrote an article about the pardons of uh, Lee and Davis uh, in, oh in yeah, context. I think I may have read that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure you did in, in, in your research. Uh, but they, they bring up the fact that, that in the 1970s, suddenly Lee and Davis are back in the, the spotlight and are being mentioned in this light. So uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll come right back. Mm-hmm. And I want to start with that question. What um, what exactly you know, wasn't Lee pardoned earlier or why, why in the seventies, all these questions surrounding, surrounding that. So, uh, and, and give you a chance to point out that, uh, my good friend, Fran, uh, in his excellent article did get one detail wrong, uh, and that you've brought to light in your book. So we'll leave listeners hanging on that. We'll be back in just a moment with John Reeves, author of the lost indictment of Robert E. Lee. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is civil war talk radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. 
All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Reeves, author of The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, The Forgotten Case Against an American Icon, uh, John, the question we ended our first section with was why, uh, what was Lee being pardoned for in 1975? Uh, why did they think he hadn't been pardoned back with everybody else in the 19th century? Yeah, so you know, it's um, it's a it's a complicated story. But long long story short, under the 14th Amendment, there's a there's a um, there's a section in there that prevented any Confederate leaders from holding public office. And that disability was still applicable when Lee died. So in 1898, at the time of the Spanish-American War, you know, they, they wanted to kind of really uh, unite the country. They, they, um, they ended that disability. But there was talk, well, it wouldn't have applied to Lee because he was he he had passed away before we made that no longer applicable. So, so to answer your question, there was really no need to pardon me in the 1970s. I mean, it was really kind of this kind of about you know it was a, it was a very arcane legal issue about whether or not this uh, clause still applied to him, and uh, I think it was done more. As a way, it was uh, it was Senator Byrd from Virginia, Senator Harry Byrd, who introduced this, and I think it was yeah, it was it was sort of something to, uh, as a way to kind of um, elevate Lee and, and kind of bring him to national attention again. One thing I mentioned in my book, which mm-hmm. I think is really important, is that um, this myth emerged that the only reason Lee didn't get pardoned was that his oath went missing. 
And that's, of course, false. I mean, Andrew Johnson <laughs> had no intention of personally pardoning Robert E. Lee, and he knew all about the fact that Lee took the oath. It was published in the newspapers at the time. Um, this thing didn't disappear. And um, and uh, even John Conyers um, from from Congress, you know, as he looked into it closely, he was just like, well, this the oath never, the people at the archives told me this thing never ever disappeared. So why are we pretending that, you know, somehow the, the reemergence of this oath therefore meant that Lee could be pardoned and there was a ceremony with Gerald Ford at Arlington and, and all that sort of thing. So I thought, it, I thought it was a good way, as a way into the story about how we had forgotten this period and then we've sort of turned it into a myth because we had forgotten it, it allowed us to kind of create something that wasn't quite true. I, I thought it was a great uh, entree into the story. And you know, it, as you noted, to, to get a pardon from, from President Andrew Johnson after the Civil War, uh, those Confederates who weren't covered by the general pardon, uh, people like Lee and others higher in the government, had to take an oath of loyalty, and uh, Lee did so. Uh, Davis never did, but but Lee did. Yeah, and then Davis and, Davis would never. <laughs> no, he had, he was a diehard. But yeah. the idea, uh, as, as you said, in 1975, well, we have to pardon Lee because he he never got pardoned because he never took the oath. Uh, wasn't true, or that he took the oath and nobody knew about it and it was missing. Again, a complete myth that the National Archives had it on display from the 1930s. They knew where it was. Everybody involved in where it was, but somehow the story gets started, the oath is missing, and now that we found it, we can go ahead with the pardon process. It's all, as you say, absurd, but uh, I mentioned Fran McDonald's article. He puts it in the context of the pardon of Richard Nixon. Uh, yeah, and, and I, thought that it, was, I thought that was a great point. Um, and, and, it was, and also, it was the time of the bicentennial, too, so there was a exactly. lot of... You know, so you get unity. Real, yeah. yeah. Um, one one thing I'll add about that too is, and I go into this probably in too much detail in the book, but I, I felt it needed to be documented because no one had really kind of drilled down into the details. But um, so they applied for a pardon, and mm-hmm. at, and and he, of course, Johnson had no intention of pardoning him. But his application was a little. Uh, he, he sent in the pardon, and then the oath several months later. So that right. was a bit of a bureaucratic snafu. Um, but then eventually, right before the government dropped the case against Lee and the other 36 Confederate leaders who had been indicted, they also gave a general amnesty for all. You know, they don't say it in the proclamation, but it was basically for all those who've been indicted. You know, mm-hmm. were the last ones. So, so for all intents and purposes, he was pardoned under that general amnesty. It was Christmas Day, uh, 1868. Um, so, like I said, the only the only thing that needed to be done in 1975 was, you know, addressing this 14th Amendment disability. Mm-hmm. And most people think that that had already been done in the 1890s, so it was really unnecessary. Now, there are, as you say, there's a lot of uh, sort of tangled threads in here. If we go right back to the end of the war. Uh, even before the end of the war, you you have Lee surrendering the Army of Northern Virginia to Grant at Appomattox, mm-hmm. and, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, then you have 
the question of what is to be done with the ex-Confederates and the assassination of Lincoln certainly poisons the water and, and, and to the extent there's any beginning movement toward goodwill between the sides, this re-enrages many Northerners. Um, but you point out some other interesting things in your book. For example, you talk about um, Lee himself and the, the photograph session he had right after the war. I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did, Lee sat for photographs with, with Brady. What do those photographs tell us? Uh, yeah, well, you know, what, yeah one, one thing that I think is, is, is such a great symbol is that um, right before they're starting to take photographs, um, Brady taking, you know, there were, there were several, right? And there were some with just Lee and then there were some with Lee and his son and one of his aides. And um, the first one of Lee, he's sitting on his back porch of a house in Richmond that was, had been rented by his wife after they had left Arlington, but written on the brick is the word devil. And um, I think it's symbolic because Brady took the photo with devil on there recognized it, erased it, and took the same photo again. You know, so it was almost just like, hey, we can't have that, you know, this kind of hostile um, word. So in any event, I think that that is in, an interesting symbol. And then as for the photographs themselves, one thing that I noticed, this is a tiny error, and, and you know, I don't like to be pedantic about such things, but, but I noticed that a lot, some sources are, have the date, have different dates for when those photographs were taken. But I w- because there was a, in, an inaccurate error in one of the newspaper's accounts, when I read Brady's account of it, it happened the day after Lincoln died. So I think that is a very important thing to know, that these guys were being photographed in their kind of Confederate uniforms at their Richmond house literally the day after Lincoln had died. So this would have been on a Sunday, and um, Easter Sunday. Um, and um, and it, it's just very powerful. And, you know, and I, and I think Lee, to his credit, was, was, was upset and, and obviously didn't want this to happen to Lincoln and, and probably um, was, was sincere in thinking that this was a bad thing all the way around. But Lincoln's assassination brings Andrew Johnson into the White House, yeah. and he, of course, is, is famous for having said, you know, treason must be made odious. Um, the expectation is he will be much harsher than Lincoln. He will punish the Confederate leaders. Uh, why punish just the Confederate leaders? Uh, yeah, you-, you know, and um, I think that that... That was one of the hardest things to understand as I was doing research, because I think many of us, right, have this sense that Andrew Johnson, who's from Tennessee, was maybe too, well, not too friendly, but at least for northern, you know, radical Republicans, he was too generous to the Southerners, and he wasn't tough enough, and his policies towards the Confederate States, etc. But actually, in reality, he was quite tough on the leadership, but maybe a little more... um, merciful towards just the average Confederate soldier. So I think that his policy that emerged was forgiveness for everyone except maybe the top 40 or 50 or so 
Confederate leaders and then deal with them harshly. Um, and in many ways, you know, it, I don't think that's a bad, <laughs> it probably wasn't the worst way to think about it, because obviously <laughs> you couldn't have treason trials for 200,000 some odd, you know, or, or more um, right. people who served in the Confederate Army. So, and, and I think it's interesting the way they explained it and rationalized it is, well, the overwhelming majority of soldiers and citizens of the Confederate states were were kind of bamboozled by these aristocrats and planters who were pursuing their self-interest. And, and so they had been sort of tricked by the leadership. Um, I mean, I think that might be questionable, but it was one way to kind of solve the problem, you know. And, and that was a view that you know, Abraham Lincoln had held early in the war. I think he was mm-hmm. eventually disabused of it. Grant talks in, in his memoirs. It wasn't until Shiloh that he gave up that idea uh, that most Southerners weren't really going to fight over this. So it, it does make some sense. But uh, it, And you see a movement toward this. Johnson is harsh, uh, or, or at least uh, unyielding at first. He certainly uh, does not pardon any of the Lincoln assassination conspirators were convicted. Uh, So you've got executions there. Uh, You've got the execution of Henry Wirtz, the the commandant at Andersonville. Uh, What, who else, who was on the list? Um, uh, If Johnson's thinking of 30 or 40 people, did he actually have a list? Do we know? uh, Yeah, uh, so, so, um, and you know, I I include in my book the the, um, 37 who were indicted Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, Confederate soldiers, Lee, obviously, Longstreet, um, of Lee's sons, uh, one of his nephews, but then, you know, other people like Jubal Early at um, the cabinet, um, the Confederate cabinet. Breckenridge um, escaped, uh, luckily. Um, he had been obviously a, um, a general, but also a secretary of war at the end of the Confederacy. But I think, the, so I think the Johnson, I think it really was at least right after the war. I think he, he really wanted to go after a, a good amount of the 40, 50 or so, uh, the leaders, you know, a smattering of former cabinet members and, um, the, the top military, uh, people. And, um, you know, I, I think obviously Lee, um, Davis, uh, some of these others. He even one time said, Longstreet includes this in his memoirs, that, you know, no matter what happens, I would never pardon Davis, Lee, and Longstreet, um, that you guys have caused us too, much, too many problems. And this was after probably Johnson recognized that um, there might not be successful prosecutions. But I think in those days of, you know, the summer of 1865, 1866, you know, he was quite firm. And then to your point, you could argue in the beginning of 1866 that Johnson had really done what he said. He had arrested a lot of the Confederate cabinet. He had indicted 37 of the leaders. He had, as he said, uh, you know, probably a trumped up trial, but he had uh, prosecuted and executed uh, words, um, right, in, you know, he was executed right in front of the Capitol building. And then, of course, all of the conspirators in the Lincoln assassination had been tried and convicted by a military court and executed as well. So, you know, it was a pretty robust beginning. Um, and then, and then, and then it sort of tapered off, um, for, for lots of different reasons that I discuss in the book. 
Well, the the list is a fascinating one of these these thirty seven uh, Confederates who are indicted in uh, in May of eighteen sixty five. Uh, uh, immediately after the the end of the actual fighting, um, I'm sorry, June of eighteen sixty five. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you point out Jefferson Davis is not among them because he'd already been indicted in the District of Columbia. And there, there. You talk about the jurisdictional issues that could get involved here, but this list of thirty-seven, I thought, was really fascinating because you've got the people uh, who we've all heard of, Longstreet and Lee. We've got some. Uh, we've got Lee's sons, and then we've got some second-tier uh, generals. Uh, William Mahone uh, is, mm-hmm. is one. Um, uh, Henry Wise, Benjamin Eugee, uh uh, Jubal Early, uh, Richard Ewell, but not you know other major commanders, Braxton Bragg, and so on. Maybe he didn't you know, actually help the Confederacy, but uh, then you've got all these other people, uh, various uh, you know the Adjutant General uh, Sam Cooper, uh, Lee's adjutants uh, like Taylor. You've got Wade Hampton, and and cabinet members, and and then people. I'm not even sure what they're, uh, you know, why, why they're there, but it's it's quite a mix. Now, yeah, this, this yeah. In, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm, I, I just was agreeing. Like, yeah, it is a very, it's a motley it, group. Of <laughs> it, it is. It's a, a, a widespread group of people. Well, what I want to ask, and we'll we'll take a break in a moment, so we'll come back with this question. Um, these people are indicted in uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. In 1865, and as you explain in the book, there are reasons, among other things, a treason charge has to be brought in the uh, the, the place where it occurred. So uh, Virginia is where these Confederates were operating. I guess I would explain Braxton Bragg. He's out in the Western Theater. So these are all mm-hmm. Eastern Confederates, um, and they have to be, and they're indicted there. But it's it, John Underwood, the local judge who oversees this almost seems like a rogue agent acting on his own. It's not Andrew Johnson supervising this or Sam and Chase, Chief Justice. It's an individual federal judge. So we'll come back in a minute and find out who is Judge mm-hmm. Underwood and what's he all about. We'll do that when we come back and talk more with John Reeves, author of The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. 
The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John Reeves, author of The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, the story of how Lee and uh, uh, three dozen other Confederate high-ranking officials were indicted for treason. June 1865. Uh, so we left everyone hanging, John. Why was the trial not conducted uh, immediately in June of 65 with the result of perhaps capital punishment for Lee and the others? Yeah, so, so that, was a, that was a very interesting story in and of itself. And it's, I think it's, it's one that, you know, Historians and teachers and people know this story, which I'm about to tell you, but I don't think that the details are quite right. And that is, the general understanding is that Ulysses S. Grant stepped in and said to Andrew Johnson, look, you can't prosecute these guys. They had an agreement with me at Appomattox, so I want you to quash these indictments, and that's that. And then later, you know, Years later, you know, Grant was a was a storyteller, and he would repeat it, and it, and it became a bigger and bigger story. You know, it became, I you know, Grant saying, "I looked Johnson in the eyes and said he can't do it." And, you know, <laughs> he made it into a, a more of a grand tale than it was. But what I found to be the truth was this: that they, Grant did tell Johnson that the agreement at Appomattox. Um, wouldn't allow that. But Grant wasn't a lawyer, and he was, I think, wrong on that point. And what, what the Attorney General and others had, had ruled was that um, once the war was officially over, those paroles that were agreed to at Appomattox were no longer in operation, and then they could be prosecuted. Now, one of the things, as you know, as a, as a, as a teacher, is the, the Civil War didn't actually end until August 1866, officially, uh, legally. And so, Johnson, when he was talking with Grant, you know, he, he spoke to his attorney general afterwards and said, well, you know what, one, politically it would be tough for me to go after this hero, Grant, because the people love him, and I don't want to get into a showdown with him. He might resign. Um, but two... He might have a point that these paroles protect them as long as the war isn't officially over. So, and I actually discovered the document from Attorney General James Speed, where he said, well, we're just going to wait till the war is over, and then we're going to go after these guys. So, so, so that was, that's what, what is the story there. And then 
it, it, it's in the cabinet as they kicked it around that summer. It's funny because as later, as, as recent as October 1865, Johnson had sent a note to Chief Justice Salmon Chase saying, let's get after these guys. So Johnson, could, Andrew Johnson could be a little cavalier about that issue about whether to go after them or not, but um, with the war not being over yet. But um, I think generally, though, in the summer, late summer of 1865, the cabinet felt that Jefferson Davis would be the best one to try first because he didn't have a parole um, as a soldier. So he was a uh, not protected by any um, agreement and, and B, um, he was seen as the arch traitor and was in prison. Um, and they felt like, well, if we can't win against Jefferson Davis, then we wouldn't be able to win against any of the others, particularly Lee, because under any circumstances, that was going to be a tough one with all of um, the, the, the love that Virginians and many other Southerners had for him. That was never going to be an easy trial, no matter what. Well, I mean, that brings up an interesting point that it is, we said in the, the previous section, uh, a treason trial has to take place in the district where the event occurred. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, treason is the only crime really defined in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, so, so there are some, some definite limitations on, on what's involved in it. And that means they're going to have to have the trial in Virginia. And that means you're going to have to get a jury of Virginians mm-hmm. willing to convict Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis. Uh, so suddenly it's a much harder problem now. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because um, one of the things that I mentioned, too, is that, um, you know, there were these hearings on, in Washington before the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, and Lee was somebody who testified, but Judge Underwood also testified, and during his testimony he said, well, I guess I could pack a jury to get a guilty verdict. And that, of course, shocked everybody, and everyone thought that was extremely corrupt. I explained it in the book. I mean, it does seem corrupt. <laughs> but doesn't sound but good. I get, no, but I think that Underwood one time explained himself that what he meant by that was in Virginia, they had a different custom than he was used to. He was originally from New York, but then lived in Virginia, where, you know, the... Uh, a clerk of the court would choose who should be on the jury. And, mm-hmm. and so that was packing. So, you know, yeah, you would probably be looking for people who you think would be um, sympathetic to, to the verdict that you wanted, but still, you know, you're still going to get a, a random sample, so to speak of, of people. I mean, you wouldn't be able to insist that they, um, return a verdict one way or the other. So anyway, that's, he meant it in a kind of a nuanced way, but still, that set off warning bells for a lot of people who were watching this, because that testimony was made public. And, uh, um, and so I think I say in my book, Underwood became the most hated man in Virginia because he was, he was well known for giving these, you know, these rants before the jury about, you know, the crimes of these Confederates and, and that sort of thing, which, which, you know, giving those sort of speeches in Richmond or Norfolk um, wasn't well appreciated at the time. Yeah, he, he was uh, a unionist, uh, and that's very much an outlier in, mm. in Virginia. And 
so when when he oversees these indictments and uh, you know as you say testifies about how he could arrange to get a jury that would, would convict uh, Confederates even there in in Virginia that would be that, that was problematic but the decision is made don't conduct these trials till the official end of the rebellion has been declared uh, word goes out don't arrest these men yet uh, until we're mm-hmm. ready to proceed. So now you've got, uh, it, it seems to me, then then you've got this really sad kind of story of, of time just slipping away. It's one thing after yeah. another. Uh, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court's not ready, or the prosecuting attorney's not ready, the, the Attorney General's not ready, or his assistants have left for one reason or another. And before you know it, you're into 1868, and now everybody's busy with Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial. Yeah. Uh, so skipping through a, a lot of that, which I found very interesting uh, as, as a, a reformed lawyer, no longer uh, participating, uh, as well as a historian, I, I found this really interesting stuff. And I think most listeners would, would be fascinated as well. Uh, finally, we get to 1868, 1869, and the government is deciding maybe we shouldn't go ahead with this. And you print the letter from uh, Richard Henry Dana. Uh, yeah, yeah. Be, tell us about who was Dana and why does he advise not to go ahead with these trials? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, um, I found myself as I was writing this to be, I found Richard Dana and William Everts to be just supremely sensible. You know, and so I think that, you know, Dana in particular, and I think that that's such an eloquent statement that I, that's why I included that as an appendix, because I mm-hmm. think that he was saying is, you know what, we've established the principle that we want, and that is that they did commit treason, that you can't make war against the United States government. Dana, ironically, was also the, the lawyer in the prize cases decision. Mm-hmm which was the one that established that notion that the federal government could both treat the Confederacy as a belligerent power, but mm-hmm. also as uh, states in rebellion. And what, what that meant was that it meant that they could bring treason charges after the war. So Evans was saying, look, we already got what we want. Don't put this in front of a Virginia jury and, and get the wrong verdict, which will be a slap in our face. And, it's already now uh, three years since the war's over. It's time to just kind of move on and you know, it's almost like declare victory and go home. You know, I think yeah. that's a, a, a quick summary of what Dana was saying, although it's much more eloquent uh, than that. Um, and you know, and I and I think he was right to do so. And you know, Salmon Chase was another one who was a fascinating character because mm-hmm. he truly believed that treason had been committed, and yet he didn't think that punishments, uh, you know, severe punishments was what, what we should be doing because it would be too divisive. So I think that he was partly responsible for the stalling of this to, so it would just not, he was hoping it perhaps would peter out. And then towards the, he was very, one of the things, one of the other things that put an end to um, continuing the trial against Jefferson Davis is that Chase was very open to this idea that, remember I mentioned the 14th Amendment, which introduced this disability against Confederate leaders? Right. Well, Chase and, and the prosecu- and 
Chase and the defense team for Davis were, were thinking, well, wouldn't it be double jeopardy then to punish Davis again because he's already received this? And that was almost going to be his way out, Salmon Chase. And so once the prosecution saw, like, okay, the judge is already found a way out, that's when Everts was the one who just said, okay, I'm folding my cards. It's time to do it. And I think, I, think I, I like the way he phrased it, Everett. He says, it's just time to close out the rebellion. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just time to, let's just, just stop now because it's all getting away from us. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's how, it, so that's how it came to an end. But I think, um, you know, at least from, from a legal perspective, I think Dana and Everett probably made the right call given the circumstances in 1868. Well, politically, certainly that would be the case, that it, it, the, the, the ardor had cooled enough, uh, as you, you point out in the book, that uh, it was either Dana or Chase, I, I forget which one had said, uh, if, if there's a mild punishment for, for treason, it would be beneath the dignity of the government. Yeah, that was Dana, uh, yeah. And, and the execution, the supreme punishment, at this point, it's too far away, and to turn around now and execute Davis or or Lee uh, three, four years after the end of the fighting would not would just would not be politically acceptable anywhere in the country. So there was there was a moment uh, in 1865, 1866, when there could have been such trials and such punishments, uh, but that moment passed. We've got just a, a moment or two left. Uh, you do mention, uh, uh, we're thinking about, that Lee doesn't get off scot-free. He loses uh, his home, Arlington. Yeah. And uh, when he tries, I, I found it interesting, though, that after Lee's death, his wife attempts to get it back, and uh, some discussion comes up in Congress about uh, compensating or, or somehow doing something for the Lee family. And the, the, the embers have not gone out. There are a number of senators who stand up and make these speeches about the blood-drenched rebellion and the arch-criminal who led it, and now you want us to you know, move Union heroes' graves so they can have their slave-begotten land back? No way. Uh, the, the, the fire hadn't gone out yet entirely. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating story, I think, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, that was a very severe punishment. Arlington is just this magnificent property. It's worth a lot. And yet it feels arbitrary, right? So uh, the, the general sense is that the Union Army was right to seize it during the war because it was a strategic location and it could have been used to... Um, affect the war effort. But, but after the war, it, it, it was seen that, you know, you couldn't just confiscate for something like that without a compensation. And the way that they did it too was, was a bit tricky because they were, they said it was for unpaid taxes, but they had, Lee had actually sent an emissary to pay the taxes, but they said, well, it has to be from Lee or his wife. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they were kind of playing games. But it, it, sure. it really was. I, you yeah, know, John, I'm sorry to say, I'm trying to say we have run out of time. This this book is fascinating. There's more to it, um, especially at the very end discussion of how we get from treason indictment to building a giant statue to Lee in Richmond mm. uh, by 1900. Uh, fascinating stories throughout. So, listeners, 
it, if you're listening live, the book might be hard to find immediately, but in a day or two, uh, and if you're listening anytime after June 6, 2018, the book will be out there. Uh, it is called The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, The Forgotten Case Against an American Icon by John Reeves. John, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was really nice talking with you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.